You're listening to the Companion Gundog Podcast, and I'm your host, Grayson Geyer. With me, as always, is Emily Shirey. How you doing, Emily? Hey, Grayson. Today is a big day. It's something we've talked about for quite a while, and uh, and I'm pretty excited for it. So, Emily, why don't you let the folks know what we're going to talk about today? Today, we're going to talk about pain, pressure, aversive control. That's right, guys. Today is... Aversive control as a basic framework of training. Um, and I'm going to bring it up once more. Uh, the aggression or the controlled aggression podcast with Jerry Bradshaw. Uh, there was one uh, episode that really spoke to me a little while, I, I reckon a year ago when I listened to it for the first time. And it was Frameworks of Training was the title. And uh, lure and reward as a framework was was discussed um, in depth on that on that uh, particular podcast, and it was really enlightening uh, and eye opening to me to consider that we had you know maybe fa- frameworks or paradigms um, that were uh, uh, you know big picture items in the way uh, we approach dog training. And so I think, you know, many of us that have been in either the protection sports or, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, or um, competitive obedience, uh, lure and reward is the way we start most of our dogs. And uh, in the gun dog world, that's really not within the traditions of training. So pretty, pretty rare to speak to folks, at least that have been in this for a long time or um, you know, have kind of generational knowledge of gun dog training and hear them talk about any reward based systems of training. Most of the traditions of training within gun dogs are going to um are going to use aversive control as a primary method. And what I mean by aversive control is escape avoidance training. So it's the uh, uh, kind of uh, the age old nomenclature and dog training of escape avoidance. Most, a lot of people may associate that with, uh, Bill Keeler, who we discussed in, um, one of the first two episodes, I think the first, when we were uh, discussing kind of the history of dog training, maybe we didn't, I don't know if we ever got to to those, but either way, Bill Keeler was a, was a famous dog trainer and wrote a famous book and really used, um, escape avoidance or the escape avoidance paradigm as a foundation of a training method uh, the Keeler method. And so um, we're not going to discuss that particular method today or any other particular method, but we are going to talk about um, escape avoidance as uh, as the para- as our general paradigm to approach dog training. So that means we're going to, that's going to be where we start from. It's where, where we're going to end. And we're not even really going to discuss the use of rewards in training, even though they, uh, for our bird dogs, um, it's impossible to make a bird dog without intrinsic reward. Um, you know, that we, we go out there and we hunt birds and that is, um, that's the primary reinforcer to our dogs. And so, uh, so it's a given that they exist and it's a given that we do our best to manipulate the environment and the reinforcer to, uh, to our benefit, but it's something that's very hard to do in our game and, uh, and is the primary reason behind our use of escape avoidance as a, as our uh, our primary paradigm of training, so just like uh, in in previous podcasts, um, I want to begin by defining terms 
And so the very first term I want to talk about is aversive control. Um, I got all of the definitions uh, that I'm going to use today um, from uh, the APA online dictionary. And um, that's a quick Google search away, but it is cited in the notes. So as always, please check those notes, uh, the show notes, and you can find uh, that citation and go on to the APA, which is the American Psychological Association um, online dictionary and, and find these for yourself. So aversive control, it is the use of aversive stimulus or consequence such as punishment, negative reinforcement to control behavior. Um, it's something we've spoken about ad nauseum to this point. So, you know, obviously they use the term punishment generally, um, uh, which because they define it a couple of different times, uh, in the APA online, def, uh, um, dictionary, but, uh, and for us, we're talking about positive punishment, um, when we're, because we're descri- describing primarily the use of pain and training. Uh, so, so on to the next definition, we'll talk, uh, talk about punishment. And so inoperant conditioning, the process in which the relationship or contingency between a response and some stimulus or circumstance results in the response becoming less probable. That's essentially for us, um, positive punishment, right? So it's important to note that uh, we are talking about P plus or positive punishment in an escape avoidance paradigm. The next definition is negative reinforcement. That is the removal, prevention, or postponement of an aversive stimulus as a consequence of a response, which in return or in turn increases the probability of that response. All right, that's the reinforcement part, guys. So that's uh, you know slightly different. Uh, wording than we've used in the past. And I like it. So it's the removal prevention or postponement of an aversive stimulus. Um, The negative part is the removal prevention or postponement, you know, so we always talk about, we remove pain, aversive stimulus um, as a consequence of a response uh, to our dog performing a specific behavior. And we'll get a little more in depth about what those could be later. Conditioning. Um, just the word conditioning, the process by which certain kinds of experience make particular actions more or less likely. And so it's, I, you know, again, different wording. I, I like going straight to the APA because I feel like their definitions are um, slightly more academic, uh, maybe than the ones we've used in the past from, um, I believe, simply psychology, but they're, they were good as well. Just, just different. Escape conditioning is the process by which a subject acquires a response that results in the termination of an aversive stimulus. Escape conditioning. So you feel pain, you escape it, and by performing whatever behavior we would hope you would perform, that's what turns the pressure off. That's your escape conditioning. Avoidance conditioning. The establishment of behavior that prevents or postpones aversive stimulus. Um... And I also added below that it's prompted by a signal predicting the aversive stimulation often. Uh, So I've watched other trainers talk about this online, maybe give a lecture online. And oftentimes they talk about um, the escape conditioning as, as being kind of tantamount to negative reinforcement. And I agree with that. And they also talk about avoidance conditioning as being kind of tantamount to 
punishment. And I also agree with that. But I, as I've kind of argued in the past, that we can use positive punishment to elicit um, the a context in which we're going to turn around and use negative reinforcement right off the bat. And so primary examples of this for me would be when I'm using the place board to, to introduce leash pressure and the stepping off initiates the leash pressure. So there is a component of positive punishment there. Certainly if that happens every time you step off, that's going to prevent that. And that's going to be that uh, there's going to be a component of avoidance in that. But also what happens is you step off, it initiates the pressure and the pressure is constant until you're back on. So there's a negative reinforcement or escape conditioning component of that as well. So um, again, these things don't exist on an Island. And if we, if we, recognize what's going on, we can kind of use it to our advantage. We can show the dog that they have control of not only initiating the quote unquote pressure, but also escaping the quote unquote pressure. Um, Emily, would you like to add something to that? Do you want to go ahead and give your little talk about um, the definitions of pain and pressure and um, maybe what, what types of pressure there are and how it relates to pain? Yeah. Maybe. No, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, it, you know, pressure um, pressure is probably an overused word or it's a term that's not clearly defined. And honestly, I, I don't know that I want it to have a, necess- a truly necessarily clear definition. I want pressure to essentially mean a state of discomfort for the dog, um, whether that be physical or whether that be mental. We often use the term perceived pressure. And I'm going to get to that down the road here. But I also, you, you often hear me in, in any lecture, and I know I've used said it in this series of podcasts before as well, that I think it's really important for us to be truthful, clear with our language and transparent. So I like to use the word pain, even when I may be describing something that could be considered, um, you know, slight discomfort. So that pretty much brings us to um, what we were going to discuss next after defining those terms, which is the ideology that surrounds uh, the use of these terms. Um, This is an uncomfortable subject for a lot of folks. Uh, It's very popular and, and well received among the, you know, the general public. Um, We, you know, we're all dog lovers. Nobody wants to hurt our dogs, as we've said before. Uh, I just, you know, want us to be able to have frank conversations and an open forum about what's going on in dog training without having to feel like we need to hide in some kind of dark corner uh, to discuss the use of aversive control and training. Um, you know, so I always recommend that folks getting into dog training, you know, just starting out, that, that they start in reward-based systems. Um, reward-based systems and compulsive systems, and what I mean by compulsive systems are these systems where we utilize primarily um, aversive control. These are not mutually exclusive to one another, which means I can do them both. I can do them simultaneously. I can run them separate systems parallel to one another. I can mix them and match them down the road. They, they can coexist. And um, just because I 
use these maybe quote unquote old school methods or, or whatever you want to call it doesn't mean I can't be a progressive trainer. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, that that kind of comes up in, in much of the current conversation. Um, reward-based systems are inherently lower risk. So if you're getting started, it's a great place to start. You're going to develop a sense of timing in reward-based systems. I like to do them with all my puppies. I think it's a great way to, uh, to get your puppies to learn to learn. Um, and, and to be engaged, but when you're engaged, you can't be hunting birds. And that's a, that's a, a, a big conundrum. Uh, when I think Emily, I could be wrong, but I think you're pretty similar to me. When I came to this world, because I came from a world in which reward-based systems were commonplace I thought I knew something. I had some kind of magic pill that nobody else in gun dogs could ever understand. I understood the use of reward-based systems and I was going to take the world by storm and show people that you could train bird dogs in a force-free manner, quote unquote, force-free manner. That, am I touching on something there that may be true? Oh, for sure. I remember, I think I showed up at one of my first NABDA training days with um, smelt fish for blitz to oh. use. And I'm pretty sure I ended up with just a gross bag of fish by the end of the day because she wanted nothing to do with them. That's good that she wanted nothing to do with that because that's a super high value reward. Yeah, you know, I mean, and I, and I see that a lot and there's nothing wrong. And there are, and, and also, you know, there are, um, some trainers out there that are effectively incorporating, you know, some, some strong kind of force-free techniques or reward-based techniques um, into their traditional techniques and doing very, very well with it. I know Angie Barron has kind of brought a, a, up a lot of points um, on the Gundog It Yourself podcast, uh, which I highly recommend, by the way, but um, that are valid. And I think she's doing a good job. And I think she's helping people you know, maybe that wouldn't be uh, interested in coming over to this to this world and and feeling like there's less pressure and and maybe um, you know less uh, criticism of of their way of thinking over here. So it's important not only to understand reward based systems or force free systems or marker and clicker training, but it's also I think important for us to. Um, to not alienate or ostracize anybody because they want to try to stick to that. I uh, I brought this up at that GDIY training camp. Um, if you have a moral opposition to something, then no one should ever make you feel as if you shouldn't have that. You know, but what I would suggest is I, I hope we can all explore our own values and why we hold them. And, and that's something I, we'll touch on later. But, you know, if if you don't feel right with it, then... You should not feel compelled by any group of people to act a certain way. You shouldn't act against your moral, own moral compass, and um, and that's your, you know, that's your job to protect your dog, uh, to protect your dog's, you know, emotional and mental state as well as their drive. And there's nothing wrong with being trepidatious when you're new, and there's also nothing wrong with not wanting to inflict pain on your dog. Um, you know, I as I. And and that was they were never my primary motivators for wanting to use reward based systems. My primary motivators for wanting to use reward based systems is because they're stinking effective. 
Yeah, they're, they are. And I mean, you know, people that are training dogs to, to perform very complex tasks almost always are you training in marker systems. Um, to, to some extent or in direct reward based systems. It's, it's really, really hard to compel dogs to perform super, super complex behaviors, um, in a very flashy manner. So I'm thinking things like competitive obedience and, uh, and like trick dog stuff and circus dog stuff. And congratulations, by the way, with Ember, (laughs) she's, uh, uh, Emily's, uh, lab puppy is out there, um, going ahead and, and, uh, earning titles and trick dog stuff right now. So that's pretty cool. So, um, you know, check that stuff out, but that's, that's what it comes down to. So, you know, it's effective. There's nothing wrong with reward based systems. And there's also nothing wrong with, uh, you know, with wanting to, to take your time and be safe with your dog. But that being said, those of us that are using compulsive systems, that's our right. And it's also something to me, that's not about uh, feeling any sort of gratification by inflicting pain on my dog. It's about making my dog stronger, you know. And so I am somebody that values adversity. The adversity that I've had in my life, I feel like, has gone much farther in shaping my character um, than, uh, than maybe the rewards I've reaped along the way. And, and I also see physical pain as being a very important part of that in my life. So I was somebody as a, as a child, um, was highly involved in athletics. I may not have ever been very good at them, but I understood at an early age that, uh, that pain tolerance or at least resilience meant something. It meant something on the wrestling mat. It meant something on the football field. And even though I may not be the most talented kid out there, if I could suffer a little better than the next guy, um, there's a good chance that I might uh, get a start in position or uh, or even beat him on the mat, you know. And and I and I think uh, there's value in that. And um, resilience is super important. Um, I think as a pro dog trainers, something we also need to be aware of are professional ethics. We don't ever want to cross the line. And like I said, you can only follow your own moral compass. Um, But as a, you know, as an American that values American uh, perceptions of liberty and somebody that may consider himself fairly libertarian, um, I recognize that rights come with responsibilities. And so, you know, not only what people see, but what they perceive and so that's one of the reasons I think it's really important for me to be transparent and use this type of language because I want to educate people. I want people to know that I not only love my dogs, care deeply about them, and feel, and my, my perception is that I'm, I'm doing best by them by exposing them to physical pain, um, to, to uh, emotional and mental stresses, um, and, and, and through that exposure, I'm making a tougher, more resilient dog, ready to be more independent and face challenges without needing me there. Um, that's my defensive compulsion. But I also, like I said, I'm very well aware that there's a fine line between good training and, um, and abuse. And so don't abuse your dogs, you know, and, and, 
Um, if you have to think of what you're doing is, uh, you know, if you have to step back and go, man, am I number one, am I losing my cool? Am I, am I bringing emotion into this thing is what I'm doing as, am I lacking intent here? Um, uh, you know, then, then you need to probably put the dog away for a while and think hard about what you intend to do in your next training session and, and just, you know, be very careful with it. Um, so that all said to address the first, that, that question you asked a while back, which is, you know, definitions of pressure and pain and, um, you know, pain obviously is something clearly defined somewhere. It's a, you know, it's neurological, you know, physical pain matters. We also know that we suffer emotional pain. We talk about stress, you know, discomfort, that's pressure to me. Um, you said something to me last week that, that really hit home and it was that your dog doesn't necessarily share your values. And I think that's really important because I think, again, we're talking about something that's not very comfortable to talk about. Um, when we talk about pain and stress and quote unquote pressure, and many of us don't want to feel as if we're abusing our dogs. We don't, maybe don't understand what we're doing in training, or we don't understand what others are doing in training and it's, and and we don't like it and it's an uncomfortable feeling. And not only, not only do we not like it, we don't want to learn to like it and that's okay too. Right. We don't want to, I think you can be tolerant without wanting to enter into somebody else's world. So that's fine. If that's, if that's, what your value set tells you to do, then that's okay. That said, you know, your dog's still a dog. And there, you know, I, in my opinion, their sense of history and present and future kind of informs the conditioning process. And I think that meant that is one of the reasons physical pain is such a valuable tool for us. And so, um, I, I don't know a better way to say it than, you know, if, if you feel, if it makes you feel weird or awkward to apply pain to your dog, you know, or it's not your dog, that's you, that's your value. Take responsibility for it yourself. Absolutely. Understand that you're the one feeling that way. And that's cool. Absolutely. Like, that's fine. I would never tell you otherwise. If you show up here and you say like, I don't, I'm not comfortable with this grace and I don't want to do that to my dog. I'm going to say, good on you. Here are some alternatives. You've got a long road to hoe. This is going to be harder for you. And there's a good chance that you're not going to be able to get, you know, over specific humps in a reward based scenario or reward based systems. There's a chance. Maybe you've got the right dog. You know, there are dogs out there with like super balanced drives and super high prey that you can cap and channel and pre-mac your way to, to, to world championship titles. But there are also dogs that, that are not going to be like that. Um, and what I, the more I find, the more I do this, the more I find out that I kind of, I like the dogs I used to not like, I like a lot more now dogs that used to feel like more of a challenge to me because maybe they needed to be compelled through certain parts. Um, you know, have, have they're speaking to me in ways they never did before. Um, so and I think more than me finding out, I, I like different, a, a different type of dog than I thought I did is really that my scope of what I do like has broadened. 
Um, you know, what, what I consider a good dog now, I, I may not have considered a good dog five years ago or two weeks ago for that matter, you know, cause we're, we're changing with every session. I'm not, you know, and I don't remember who said it and this is unfair to them cause it was a recent quote, but I'm not the same trainer that I was went last Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's completely ripped off from somebody, but it's, I thought it was an awesome quote, yeah. you know? Um, so, so there you go. There you have it. You know, what, regardless of the tool, if it's a prong collar, your dog's not weird about prong collars. You're weird about prong collars, <laughs> right? If it's an e-collar, the same, the same thing holds true. And that's not a shot. That's not a direct shot at anybody. If the, you know, something that often comes with that sense of trepidation or that feeling of trepidation is an unwillingness to commit to a systematic approach to conditioning these specific tools. If we only pull them out on club training day, because we feel perceived pressure Mm -hmm. by the group, then yeah, our dog's going to be weird about it because that's the only time it's ever applied. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to create associations between club day and that sense sensation. Yep. And And that, that also happens in the context of I'm only going to use this tool when I have no other options and then I feel uncomfortable about using it because I don't have any practice and then the dog, it becomes novel again and we get into this really uncomfortable situation all around and people like to go, oh, my dog doesn't like this tool, but look at the context that you're bringing it up in. Yeah, super well said. I mean, novelty, we've talked, we've discussed before. That's a big problem. You know, if my, if my e-collar is novel, uh, that's not conditioned. Yep. My dog needs to understand the tool before I use it to develop new behaviors. Yep. Um, or I or I use it to reinforce, you know, known behaviors. Yep. I mean, I, you need to be familiar with the sensations right. that you're feeling. Um, so if you're going to use it, you got to be committed. Absolutely. And I, you know, cause I get clients all the time. I, you know, and, and, and this is not picking on my clients. So if you're out there listening and, and this is something you said, <laughs> just understand, like I hear it all the time, guys. Like, oh, and I ask folks, hey, you know, so is your dog familiar with the collar? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I rarely have to use it at all. I put it on them and they know right away. Well, you've got a collar-wise dog and guess what? You know, we don't know what your dog's response is going to be. Just because it has an aversive response to your collar doesn't mean it has a well-understood response to the collar. Um, And so... I always, and I try my best to be sensitive when I talk about this, but I'm like, yeah, so that means what we need to do is go back and reintroduce it and we need to make it a normal part of their life. Absolutely. Um, You know, it doesn't have to be there all the time. Another thing that makes dogs collar wise is when we rely on it a hundred percent of the time to do all of our punishing and reinforcing. So, you know, my dogs understand that, Hey, just because you're a hundred yards away from me, doesn't and and you're wearing the collar or you're not wearing the collar you know because when you are wearing the collar i'm still going to put the effort in to walk out there and to correct specific behaviors manually i want you to understand that that's that's always on the table or to to positively reinforce behaviors Mm -hmm. manually um you know it's i'm not going to rely on the remote training device to be there for everything all the time and and that you know that I mean, it's I would say the great majority of what I see as collar wiseness out there is because of that. Is because number one, we either only apply it as a, usually a positive punisher, a big aversive stimulus, um, when we're unhappy with something. Usually, hopefully, the dog when when it's not a recall, 
when your dog naturally comes to seek affection from you when it's scared or hurt. It's a recall when it understands how to turn off pressure or pain by making action in your direction until that pain goes away. That's that's a conditioned response. Now, it can be a conditioned response to get to your feet too to seek affection, but it's not one you can count on. You know, and so I want a dog, when they're feeling insecure in the field, their first thought, I want it to always be to get to me. Um, but if they don't understand that there are consequences for other options that they may choose, then they may choose other options. And specifically the one I'm thinking of is bolting. Yep. And we see that quite a bit. So, you know, a, a part of a thorough collar conditioning process in my opinion, and this, uh, you know, was kind of taught to me by one of the retriever trainer mentors I had along the way is, is debolting. Um, I want you to understand that bolting is not an option that you want to take. There's a, there's a consequence for it. And I, and we're going to put you in situations where you may think about it It'll give you other options than making it to me on recall time. Um, but you know, that said, if all we do is just condition a, a recall cleanly, then odds are we'll never need to debolt yep. um, because that'll, that's a process that'll kind of happen naturally. So that's, you know, I know we're using some language there that may not make sense to everybody. Um, you know, but we, what we, what's really important to me when we begin to talk about the e-collar and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, so I don't want to do too much of that, but is that the dog understand, Hey, continuous pressure. One way to always beat continuous pressure is to find dad and get to his feet. Um, and that's that's a safety recall for me. So I think we've covered most of what we were talking about ideologically, and we kind of dipped into, into our common tools thread that we have below there. And we've even gotten into some of our hunting dog-specific stuff. But just for the sake of continuity, I'm going to kind of get back on track with the notes and, um, and talk about tools. So common tools we're going to use in the application uh, of – escape avoidance or the aversive control um, framework. It's going to be a leash, first and foremost. I always have a small diameter slip lead in my pocket all the time. It's something that I can use to correct most dogs. Um, it's not It's not the perfect tool for leash work. Um, it requires quite a bit of manual force to apply a quality correction. And the same would hold true for even choke chains, but certainly bigger slip leads. Um, a flat collar, in my opinion, is a super, super, super weak way to deliver an aversive correction. And in my opinion, should never be used to do so. If you put a dog on a flat collar and that dog does not pull against it, then that's not a, usually a dog I would want to start with. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's what I want it to do. If I put a flat collar on you, I'm pretty much always giving you permission to pull. So, you know, we want to use a mechanical advantage. And to, in my opinion, and I'm sorry, guys, if you hear some noises in the background, we're, we're kind of dealing with a thunderstorm here, but we're going to keep tracking. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, the key is I want to be able to get, use the lowest amount of force, the least amount of physical force. And this is, so really, I'm going to take a quick second because something I, I've long wanted to address, I use the term force fetch. 
and it's a stupid term. <laughs> um, you know, trained retrieve is much more broad, but it still doesn't, it doesn't specifically talk about what I want to talk about. So ne- negatively reinforced retrieve would make a lot more sense. <laughs> Escape avoidance retrieve makes a lot more sense. Force fetch. So force if I'm using pain to coerce a dog, I'm not forcing the dog. I'm giving the dog an option. One option is is a painful consequence. The other option is the correct behavior that that either lets you avoid or escape that pain. That's not force. Physical force has a real definition. If I were force fetching a dog, I would pry its mouth open, jam it onto whatever I wanted to put in its mouth, force its mouth shut, and hold it that way. That would be a force fetch, and it would be ineffective. It'd be a dumb, dumb way to train a dog. <laughs> so, you know, but I mean, but a clarity of language is what this whole podcast is about. And so I'm going to continue to use the term because it's what we've always done. That's a tradition of training. Um, but it's not what we're doing, you know, and I'm not forcing a dog. So when we talk about force free, that's a dumb term too. <laughs> force free is a ridiculous term. If you're putting a leash on a dog, which all force-free trainers pretty much do unless they're existing in a Skinner box with the dog, um, then you can't be a force-free trainer. You're applying force. If you have a flat collar on a dog and you have a leash to apply to that dog and that dog takes any of the slack out of the lead, you're applying force to each other. That's, that's a fact. So, so let's, I mean, you know, let's all get together and come up with a new vocabulary for dog trainers and let's get force, yeah, force has a place in there, but it's not the way we use the term. Um, what we want to say is we're primarily positive reinforcement, negative punishment, and non non reinforcement type trainers, or we're using aversive control as a primary framework for training dogs. Those are all fine ways to describe what we're doing, but what we're not doing is forcing dogs or being force free. Um, so uh, I digress. Back to tools, uh, that leash, right? So just a leash, and uh, and pardon, we've got some dogs firing up on our thunderstorm downstairs. Um, collar, we we talked about the slip lead. We talked about a choke chain. They both basically have there's the same premise is that they constrict around the dog. We use them to kind of to pop the leash, and we're going to take the slack out quickly. And use that kind of to create some discomfort or pain um, as an aversive correction for the most part. Or we're going to apply continuous pressure and the dog is going to escape that by performing a behavior. Often, like we had to provide continuous pressure with our leash on a mechanical advantage collar upwards until their dog, the dog's butt hits the ground and we relieve that pressure. That's negative reinforcement um, uh, to a sit, Right. Probably the most effective and humane training device on the market that's that f- for the application of pain is a prong collar. Um, and this is because it's got a finite amount that it can constrict. It's on a martingale system and it pinches the skin with very little physical force applied. So it's, it allows the trainer or the handler to use the most subtle uh, correction to to get the I think the biggest change of behavior. Yep. Um, once the dog is familiar with the with the equipment and uh, and its use, so I highly recommend if you're out there and 
you know, and you're new to this, don't be afraid of prong collars, but also, you know, don't go out there and just start jacking your dog up with it too, because it does hurt. It applies pain. It's, it does what it's supposed to do. It And what it doesn't do is, you know, jack up their trachea um, or turn their head in such a manner that snaps their neck when they're full speed and you're on a halty and a flexi lead, right? Or, um, <laughs> you know, so... It looks medieval, I, and there's some, you know, there's some first dogs that maybe don't require quite as much force to be applied to a prong. There's some other ones, a uh, plastic one called the Star Mark collar that kind of works in the same way. I often people that are a little bit um, turned off by prongs will see those, and they're less intimidating. And it's not not a bad collar, but it's not as effective as a good old Hermspringer prong. Um, where you just take the links apart to put it on. I like those. Get don't I don't prefer the ones with the snaps. No. I think the more uh, junk you put in there that can break, the the less good it is. So um, just a good old fashioned prong is a fantastic humane device. It needs to be fitted appropriately. It needs yes. to be tight enough that the Martingale system is not fully, you know, uh, engaged and and the skin's not being pinched uh within the prongs of the of the prong collar um we want it to pinch the dog's flesh to apply that pain and we want to want it to do it in an effective manner so we can apply very little force and get some get some good response you know from the dog because they're escaping and avoiding pain so please get out there and and learn to use prongs effectively um, so that I think for me, you know, I will use a slip because it's really convenient or a prong. I'm kind of done with choke chains at this point in my life. Uh, um, you know, I, I, they're, they're not ineffective and I don't have a problem with anybody using them and they may be convenient and you can use them very well. Um, it takes, in my opinion, it takes more practice to develop the skill set required to deliver an effective correction with a, with a choke than it does with a prong. Um, so at, beyond that, there's not really a whole lot I would recommend unless you can think of anything else, just a good old maybe four foot lead for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about some bird dog specific stuff later. You know, for me, I use a check cord and a pinch collar because I'm, uh, I like the West Gibbon style and I, I think it's a really, I think it's a neat, way to to train bird dogs but it's not the same idea as using a leash and a uh, mechanical advantage to keep the slack in the lead because that's what we all need to be doing is keeping our our leashes slack and we'll have a lot less weird stuff going on with our pet dogs as we're walking them out in the neighborhood um so i'm gonna i kind of talked briefly about the check cord and pinch collar but i don't really want to i don't want to uh confuse this this conversation with that kind of talk. So we'll, we'll come back to that at some other, you know, maybe a little bit at the end of this podcast, but maybe that probably has a, that's got its own podcast written all over it, in my opinion. Um, e-collar. And I've, I've kind of went off on a tangent earlier describing my kind of my collar conditioning process, but not necessarily the process, but the, the ideology behind my, my collar conditioning. Um, to me, what collar conditioning is about is familiarizing my dog with the instrument and with the sensation that it produces. I want my dog to be familiar with that sensation, and I want it to understand that it has control over that sensation. The 
but the, you know, I, I, a lot of my retriever friends would, would think it would be heresy for me to say that I train the recall first when they train the sit first. And I understand why that sometimes like a, a, a hard stop in motion and good static command of a sit in motion for retrievers, a very important thing. And in a lot of ways it's more important than motion, but they're also masters Good retriever trainers are masters of variable speed and push-pull. And so for them to start with a static command on a collar cue, um, I don't have a problem with it. It's not my style. I, it's effective. It works. I like momentum. I want to. I want pain to create action first before it creates inaction. Um, and so for me, that's why it starts on recall. Um, and it really... It's going to be you on a long line and low level collar pressure. Um, usually going to start with vibrate function. I'm going to the vibrate function. You're going to is going to be novel. And if what that does is makes you a little spooked and you come over and you see me and you get a little treat, then that's fine. But we're going to do that over and over and over again until it becomes less novel. And you know, and we're going to bring it into the field when it's <clears throat> when it isn't novel. And the moment you stop being spooked by it, and it, you you know, best case scenario, you still see it as kind of a cue to come get a treat from me. That's cool, um, and that means it's helping you make the action that I want you to make later, um, under the threat of pain or under real pain um, or perceived pain. Uh, then that that's that's effective and helpful, but I don't necessarily need it. What I really need is for you to not be spooked by it, so that you understand it and you're, and it's not a big deal to you. So once once that's happened, I've got you at the end of that same long line, and now I begin to slowly bring up the level of uh, electronic stimulation um, until it becomes uncomfortable for you, and you make a decision and you make action. Some dogs are going to immediately turn point their nose at you and make action in your direction. And that's great. Some dogs are going to stall and hang up. And this is where people often get uncomfortable and they say, I don't like this. I'm not doing it anymore. And guess what we've done? If we've done multiple reps of that, we've taught our dog to stop action on continuous pressure. Um, and so I see that a lot. I see dogs that have gotten really good at hunkering down and bowing up and saying, I'm not doing anything. No matter, and the higher you bring it, the less inclined I probably am to do anything um, because they've been titered to that level of pressure and they've been taught that behavior. Um, so for me, I'll give a little bit of directional force sometimes to help just create action, but I don't care if the dog necessarily points his nose at me and makes action in my direction at first. What I want to see is action. So a step might buy relief from that pressure, just a step in any direction. And then once you're more inclined to do that, then I can show you how to how to really relieve that pressure by making action in my direction, if that makes sense. Once I've got that, um, the hard part's over. I've taught you that you have control. That's the key. I want you to feel that. I'm going to do a leash introduction to pressure before I add the collar to the place board, um, but I'm eventually going to bring it in there. And so for me, most dogs before I'm out in the field with my e-collar are going to understand the concept of what I call push-pull. I'm going to be able to un under-collar stimulation either bring you to me or send you away from me. Um, now, I'm not going to start... 
I'm not going to introduce compulsion in that fashion. And that's just how I'm introducing the e-collar. So I'm just talking about the e-collar here, but I'm really getting into my collar conditioning technique. Um, and it's putting the cart before the horse. What I would really want to do is use my slip or a prong collar to teach a dog um, that a little directional force, if they uh, if they give into it, they can buy relief from the pressure. And then, hey, if you're on a place board and you step off, you may feel an uncomfortable sensation that does not cease until you're back on the board. So immediately, if you step off the board, and you're always going to start on the board not under pressure of any sort, if you step off the board, that initiates um, the uncomfortable or the painful sensation. That could be considered positive punishment. It is positive punishment, absolutely, for stepping off the board. I want you to avoid feeling that sensation by staying on the board. I'm going to coerce you off the board in some way. I'm going to allow you to feel comfortable enough to come off the board. And once you do, it's going to initiate that pressure. And once you come all the way off the board, that pressure is going to stay constant. Usually it's a nagging sensation, not painful, but until you're back on the place board. And so now I've taught you, you, before I'm done with that process, I want you moving away from my physical person with no directional force from my leash back to that place board and then understand um, that that's going to, to turn off pressure. So now I've got my push uh, and I come down, I collar condition, I teach, I transition my push to the collar and I've already got my recall away from the board. And so I have the push pull. I don't want to bring that all that stuff right together. I don't want to bring my recall over into my place board work early because what I want my dog to do is I don't, I want my dog to get sticky around a place board. Um, I, I'm not recalling them from my place board. I always manually release a dog in early in training from a place board because I think that's an important place for them to feel that they need to, uh, to offer extended duration. So again, another rabbit hole, but I want you guys to understand this. These are kind of the techniques I use with those tools and, but they are, this is the, you know, they are, they fit beautifully within this aversive control framework. Anything to add to that, Emily, before we kind of move on? No, I don't think so. Okay. So those are, you know, if you're, if you're following along in the notes, those we've, we kind of covered the manual techniques as we went along. And of course the remote techniques as well. You know, everything we do with the e-collar stays close, stays controlled, stays within a fenced yard early, stays on a long line early um, until we're really confident with it. And then we take it out into the field and I'm not going to have birds in the field when I first step out there, I'm going to walk out and we're just going to walk around the farm and I'm just going to kind of teach you to go with me with the collar. Um, and so the final, well, not really the final. I've kind of, got, I guess, gotten myself out of order here a little bit if you're following on with the notes. But the hunting dogs and aversive control section, we'll talk. I've got a, a note in there that says sterile versus unsterile environments. And what I mean by that is when I'm developing control, I want to go from what I consider a sterile environment or or environments with less distractions to environments of more distractions, just the same as we would generalizing any behavior in any system of training. Um, But it's really important, right? That you don't, you're not out there. I'm not putting you in drive and then trying to gain control of you. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, you're out there and you're hopefully in a low drive state and understanding how to manipulate these things. And then as you, as we generalize the environment, as the environment becomes less and less sterile, 
um, then you're going to find that you're probably less inclined to be under control. And so this is normally where we're going to be stepping up the levels of stimulation the dogs may be feeling or the level of aversive correction we're giving manually in any way. Um, it it kind of, I also get into in these notes, engagement versus independence. And so we're getting into bird dog specific stuff here. And so if I'm in the yard, even when I'm working in aversive control frameworks, you know, I want my dog to be paying attention to me. As I step out in the bird field, I don't. I want to encourage independence. So I don't, number one, I don't want to be badgering my dog all the time with recalls. You know, I just want to, I'm going to move and I want my dog, I want to exercise enough control that my dog doesn't just self-satisfy completely in the field. But I also, and some of my young dogs, I don't care if they self-satisfy completely. Some of them, I'm going to let them go to their heart's content. And if they run over the hill and over the horizon, I got a tracking collar on them. And I hope my neighbors, I got a big lake on one side of the property. <laughs> and I know if we kind of head that direction, it's going to be really hard for them <laughs> to get, you know, a, a mile or two down the road to the highway. That's all. And so they got to, they'd have to swim a big swim. Um, you know, and so I don't mind, I, I'm not afraid of big running independent dogs. I like that. That said, when I want handle on my dog, I'm going to show them, Hey, like if you're being too independent, I'm going to make, I'm going to change directions. And if you're not with me, then there's a consequence, but I don't want to badger you so much that you're afraid to go be independent. So it's a fine line, um, with our bird dogs. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of what I wrote in this hunting dogs and aversive control section is obviously, you know, on my mind was obviously kind of the reward based systems versus aversive control. Um, because I, the next thing I go on to talk about is having an uncontrolled expansive environment with an uncontrolled reinforcer, which I often talk about when people kind of have ambitions of being force free. This is what makes it really hard to be force free in our world is that bird hunting is all about independence and trust between the dog and the handler. You know, you have to let go. Um, Reward-based systems, almost, I can't think of one that doesn't require engagement between the dog and the handler. Um, The dog and the handler need to be communicating at a much higher rate than I think allows them to be effective in the field in an independent search. What we, I want my dogs, if they're comfortable in the environment we're in, to be at two and 300 yards, be there. If that's where, if, where you're going to find the most birds, then that's where I want you to be. I want you to be aware that I'm over here, but I don't, I don't necessarily need you to be worried about me. Um, but what I need you to do is understand that and have conditioned responses once you make game. Yep. That, hey, there's you know potential consequences for not handling this game appropriately, but if you handle it right and you let dad get here, then we can be a team and then I can allow positive reinforcement to take place in the hope <laughs> that I may make contact <laughs> with with a bird with the shot. Because I, I as Emily's chuckling over there, apparently she thinks it's funny that I'm not the best wing shot on the planet. I'm relatively effective some days. But I'm uh, I'm pretty bad. I'm pretty bad with a shotgun. Um, but I do love dog training, and so I guess I'm a bird dog man. 
Um, another thing that has kind of, I guess, led to this aversive control tradition of training within the bird dog community are the, uh, the testing and trial programs and the genetic selection that comes with those. Right. So, you know, if we talk, you know, at length about any of the testing systems, especially the versatile testing systems that come out of the continent, that's, that's breeding selection. That's what it's for. You know, males don't get to breed unless they test out and do really, really well. And I know the females have a criteria that's usually a little lower. <clears throat> um, but that's because they are going to pass less genetic material down the line. You know, males can reproduce a lot, uh, in, in that world. So, um, you know, it could, it, it's, it's a part of the criteria. So it, within those traditions of training, within those testing systems, um, all that I know of for the most part, you know, they have compulsive training methods that are usually a part of the tradition of all of the systems. Trialing is the same way. I mean, we have guys that the, the effective field trialers in our country, um, many of them have either written books or, or done DVD series in the past or whatever, but they, it's, it's all been passed down. There's a lineage to all of us. And so, you know, these methods that we use to quote unquote, break our dogs out these days, um, they come from somewhere and, uh, I don't know too many of them that, are using marker systems or reward-based systems either. So that's where it comes from. Um, at the bottom, you know, we've kind of gone over all this stuff a little bit. I know I've talked about push-pull, so I've talked about the applications of, of use. Obedience, you know, I, I'd say most of the client dog stuff I do is going to be just like start with on-leash obedience. I'll use, unless I really need to bring a dog over to my side, um, I'm rarely going to use food in training with a client dog. Um, I can maintain usually a really high attitude with the hope that they're going to be released into the field at some point. So leash, quote unquote, pressure, lots of it. It's it, that's that's the that's the framework of training here. I put a slip lead on you, or I put a prong collar on you, and we heel up and down the road. If you forge, I take an inside turn. Um, and if you lag, I take an outside turn and in so doing, I create a little sweet spot that people call heel. Um, I, my number one criteria for every dog is if I've got a leash on you, you don't take the slack out of it. Uh, with now, unless that being said, I've got you on a flat collar or I've got you on a West given style or, you know, what it's not West Gibbons is not the only method that uses this, but in my opinion, the West given style pinch collar, um, I don't want you to drag me across the field on it. I don't want to be to be that comfortable. Uh, but at the same time, I don't, you know, I want you to be able to apply a little bit of back pressure to that thing. But and when that goes on, I want it to trigger back pressure, but um within reason, uh as as we hunt forward with you on a check cord. Um I, I do wanna let me give a really quick description of the force fetch process. I think there's another standalone podcast and force fetch at some point in the future. So I don't want to go super deep down the rabbit hole, but I want to, it's a special process in, in, in a specific way to me. And oftentimes we're going to use, 
we hope that the dog coming in before we even start the process has ball drive. And we've talked about that in, in, in past podcasts. So I'm going to teach that dog that through negative reinforcement to put that I want it to put a bumper in its mouth. Putting the act of putting that bumper in your mouth allows you to escape pressure. Um, keeping it in your mouth means that you're not going to feel pressure. Dropping it is going to initiate pressure. Uh, I'm going to go through this process until until you it's second nature until the context begins to drive the behavior. Something neat about this, I'm usually using a bumper, um, is that the bumper has the power to elicit prey, a prey response from the dog. It's got the power of a prey item. It also, after the force fetch process, has the power of a safe haven from pressure. And that's a, it's something that should be recognized because people talk about the magic of the force fetch quite often and how the dog comes out of it, a different dog, and there's a lot of intangibles in the way we describe it and how it's really good for the relationship and everything else. But this is one thing that I think sets it apart from a lot of other training processes and techniques is that the power we're giving the retrieve item, it's not only something you desperately want because that's natural to you, it's satiating drive, but we've also compelled you to it. And, um, and so there's something there. Uh, and that's, that's the, the part of the process I want people to under, understand. There, when we come off the table and we transition, I like to transition even with my bird dogs that I'm maybe taking into a versatile program the way I would transition retrievers on the ground. Not necessarily the same handling skills, but the same um, requirements, at least to the end of force to pile. And so um, I think this is a really good place for us to describe perceived pressure, which is the term that comes up very often. Uh, so I talk about perceived pressure. I use the term a lot of times, and maybe I'm not doing it with enough intent when I do, but um, when I say perceived pressure, I'm usually talking about the context triggering uh, a physiological response in the dog that's a response to something that they felt, you know, repetitively in the past in, in an escape avoidance paradigm or that aversive control paradigm. So when I step to the line with a dog that's been forced to the pile over and over and over and over again, when I step to the pile, sometimes if I've not done it appropriately, um, my dog is perceiving the pressure based on the context. I walk out of my, you know, I, I know where my pile is that I forced to pile to all the time. I walk, walk a certain dog down there and all of a sudden they start to get a little worrisome. Maybe they sit, they get a little nervous, they get a little fidgety. That's their reaction to that quote unquote perceived pressure, the context that we're walking. They know that there's, that they're going to have to go in a specific direction. Some dogs swing tight into heel and they become immediately more confident in the fact that they're about to walk out and go to work. And then you step to the line and you begin the cadence and that dog locks in and its eyes go downfield and its shoulders roll over and it gets ready to get shot out of a can. And that's that dog's response to that perceived pressure. Responses to perceived pressure are not always bad. I want my dog to, to, I want pressure. So this gets back to what we talked about with kind of that adversity building character thing quote unquote pressure 
to, to, to initiate performance. And I want performance to, to, to make my dog confident. I want them to go out there and enjoy what they're doing. You know, they're going to do the thing they love to do, but they're also knowing they're under quote unquote pressure to do it a specific way and to do it hard and, and right. So hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. That's how you can get some really good intensity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I mean, it's nothing like going to a retriever hunt test or a field trial and watching a really nice dog step to the line and get so intense. And you know what they've, that dog has behind it in regards to training. It's not been all sunshine and kittens, <laughs> you know? Um, so it, there's, yeah, you know, with with bird dogs, it's not we, that's not normally you know we don't get that deep. I mean, if we force fetch a dog, I want them to be intense and I want them to enjoy the retrieve, and I want in a finished bird dog when that bird hits the ground, I want them to go. Oh, am I going to get this opportunity to retrieve this bird cleanly? You know, and so that's going to create some intensity. Or when I've broke broken a dog out, when I've got a dog that's steady to wing shot and fall, and I'm not shooting birds for it anymore, but I'm putting the shot out of order, which is something we can talk about later when we get into breaking processes, that that creates intensity. You know, the sound of that shot may not elicit a break, but it makes you stand up and swell up and get excited because, you know, hey, you've heard that before and it's been associated with something in the past, but you don't act on it because you're capping drive effectively. So um, down the road, I want to do some book reviews. We've talked about that. I want to I want to look into some methods and I want to talk about those methods with these principles that we now have a grasp on. Um as everybody is is aware of at this point, I really like the West Gibbons method. I love what I really love about it more than anything is kind of the tradition of mentorship that comes along with it. Folks that know it, I think know that it's going to become the user's own thing in the end that stylistically you're going to develop your own thing from it. But there's certain tenets of, and I could be way off base. There are some people that see it as uh, certainly as, as a dogmatic thing that must be followed to the T. Um, but I think I've heard enough from people that I respect within that world to know that I'm comfortable making it a thing that's, that's not, that it, I'm not required to follow any specific rules. It's the spirit of the system. That's what's important. Um, the spirit of the system, the tenets being that the bird teach the dog and that we are out there uh, to allow that natural process to occur as best it can. Um, so that's that would probably be the, the first book review. Something to do with West Gibbons and probably have a Mr. Lindley in, in the title as well. So we'll, we'll get to that at some point. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on breaking processes because there are others that I want to talk about as well. Um, but with that said... I think this is a good place to end this. Emily, thank you as always for being here. It's been a hot day. I'm tired. I'm ready to get a big glass of water in me and, uh, and get back to my chores and we're moving in on spring of the year guys. So watch your dogs. This transitional time is when it's dangerous. We see a lot of heat casualties. Now get to my website, check out whatever events we have coming up. There's all sorts of neat stuff on the, on the calendar the, the trial and testing season gets fired up in July for me this year. My first big trial of the year at the uh, EB Summit in Illinois. So um, wish us luck. It's already I'm already starting to get nerves because it feels like it's coming so fast. 
and Emily's got Emily's going to the Invitational with Blitz, and we're working our butts off. Well, and you and Pete too. Yeah, <laughs> a lot so, of good stuff coming up. I know, guys. So thanks, thank you very much for being with us. I hope you got something out of this today. Please feel free to to contact us. Emily, you got anything else for him? Nope. All right, guys. Signing off. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today.